So you have spent the last couple of days watching your breath, cultivating concentration. And we say, said at the beginning and we said repeatedly, ah, concentration is good, it collects the mind, this is helpful. It would be reasonable to ask, helpful in what way? Helpful that I can become a good watcher of my breath? It's simply good to have a collected mind? Why is this useful to us? It's a means. It's not the end result. And it's a means to what? Upandita puts it very simply. He says, concentration is the proximate cause for the unfolding of wisdom. This fact is very important. Once the mind is quiet and still, there is space for wisdom to arise. So we're we're developing concentration for the purpose of liberating the heart and mind. In the suttas, the Buddha talks about this quality called yatabhuta, seeing things as they truly are. And concentration is the precursor to that. It's the proximate cause for us to see clearly things as they truly are, yata bhuta. (coughs) And this is very important because concentration has the potential, when we're very concentrated, and you've probably noticed this, when we're concentrated and we have states of ease and that happiness that arises, there can be a lot of contentment and pleasantness and even bliss. And this is very wonderful, but it's very temporary. It lasts as long as the concentration. And as I think Donald's said a couple days ago, you know, we can have this idea that we're going to cultivate concentration and then we're just going to live that way. And the wonderful thing about that was then all those bothersome thoughts and hindrances and all those challenges would just wouldn't arise. Well, it's interesting to know, notice that the Buddha, as he, uh, Donald talked about, went out and tried this. He got really good at concentration, probably better than any of us will ever be at concentration. And he saw clearly this isn't enough. Even as good as he was at it, it didn't create ultimate freedom. It suppresses our greed and our aversion and our delusion, but it concentration does not uproot these tendencies of mind. It's the wisdom, it's wisdom that uproots greed, aversion, and delusion. It's wisdom that ultimately creates the liberating freedom that gives us a more dependable place of happiness and ease. So what, how do we get to this wisdom? When we, yata bhuta is our key, seeing things as they truly are. And how are things truly when we look at them? The Buddha pointed again and again, and probably, in fact, it's the most consistent instruction in all his teachings. Look at the way things are, and you will see impermanence. 
There's a sutta that is called the Samadhi Sutta, concentration, the concentration sutta, very appropriate for where we are. And this is what he says. Develop concentration, noble ones, for a, concentration, a concentrated monk or, a, or person discerns things as they actually are present. And what does he discern as it actually is present? One discerns as it actually is present that the I is inconstant. Now here the word is being used inconstant, but you can hear it's another simile, uh, similar word for impermanence. Not stable, not consistent. The I, and he goes on to say, the forms outside that your eye is looking at are not constant. The consciousness with which you process what you see is not constant. And whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, you you like it, you don't, your response to it, none of that is constant. And then he goes on to say, and same thing with your ear, not constant. Smell, taste, sensations in your body, not constant. Thoughts, not constant. And so he says, develop concentration. A concentrated one discerns things as they actually are present. In this impermanent, changing way. And the Buddha uses a certain formula. It first shows up in talking about his enlightenment. The formula is, there is suffering. And then there is the arising of suffering, and there is the cessation of suffering. And there is the practice leading to the cessation. And he uses this same reference to seeing the arising, seeing the ceasing, again and again, as he was used, he uses it in terms of the five sense bases that I've just described. He uses it in terms of the aggregates, which are the, um, the different things that make up a person, make up a human being, our form and our thoughts and our intentions, all of that, you can, it, it arises and it ceases. Our views arise and cease. Even our greed, aversion, and delusion arise and cease. Thank goodness. So this truth that things are impermanent. And I'm going to, during this talk, continue presenting it conceptually so that you we sort of take it in on that level of the mind. But it's very important to understand that understanding it at the level of the mind is of limited use. We have to understand it in our being. We have to recognize it. We have to have insight and a deep knowing around it. In other words, Impermanence, seeing impermanence is a practice. This is very important. It's a practice. There's a wonderful sutta where he, where the Buddha takes his son, Rahula, through a whole series of questions saying, very much like that last one I read, saying, you know, is this permanent? And, the, and Rahula who's quite young at the time, says, "Mm -mm, nope, that's not permanent. And he asks him another question. Is this permanent? No, that's not permanent. Are your thoughts permanent? Is your eye permanent? Is what's pleasant permanent? Are your thoughts, is your intentions permanent? And each time Rula goes, "Mm -mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. And this is, uh, he is taking Rahula through a practice. And at the end of it, it says, and while this explanation was being given, venerable Rahula's mind 
through not clinging, was fully released. So it was a guided meditation on impermanence that allowed Rahula's mind to let go. So this impermanence is both obvious and subtle. So some of the obvious ways that you recognize every day, we all know the day, the day started, the day will end. The seasons, they come and go. Geologic time is enormous and it goes by. On a little bit more personal level, we, some, we have our own mortality, our own tentative relationship with this world and those of loved ones. And I've recently um, had unfortunate news of, of death of someone that is very dear. And we all know that moment when we hear something like that and it becomes so crystal clear to us the impermanence of this life. And it's the forgetting of that again and again that allows us to get caught. You know that when you really see for a moment that mortality, the world changes. Many of you may be familiar with that. I had... um, a strong experience of that last year when I was diagnosed with cancer. And it was like, wow, that's interesting. It's not quite the way I thought it was going to be. And the amazing thing is, when that happens, we become so present, so available. And you might say that meditation practice is a great substitute for cancer. If you happen to get both, then that's a double, you get a double insight. But may it not be so. And then there's an even finer level of impermanence. And that is the level of seeing the more moment-to-moment movement. Breath. Emotions. Every sound. Each moment is completely different. I realize before I go on so that you don't hold this in your mind, I'm fine. (laughs) At least until I'm not. So, but everything is changing constantly. I say that and it changes, right? It doesn't take much. So there's this constant change going on, and yet we get confused. We get confused and think things are permanent, think things are going to be solid and stick around. We think a seed is a seed and a tree is a tree, and we forget that the tree was a seed and it's all going along. And the tree will fall down and be earth. That the conceptual mind, our languaging, identifies things as isolated objects. It's a trick of our mind. It's a trick of language, of concept, that we have a name, seed, tree, building, Susie, you. And in that naming of things, very convenient, mind you, be a real mess if we didn't have that. 
But in that naming of things, we tend to lock things in and think that the name puts borders and boundaries around it, and that's what it is. Very interesting to notice that, that nature of language. And one of the problems with this also is it separates everything. I, I am me and the air is out here, the oxygen. Well, how do, is that really true? Now I breathe and the oxygen's in here. What happened to that separation? I am separate from you, but here my words are coming and they're having an impact. We're actually in this together. You sitting there. I wouldn't be talking if you weren't sitting there. We're in this together. So this delusion of separateness causes us a lot of pain. We think we're alone. And we also think that somehow I'm a separate entity that should be able to figure everything out, that should be able to control things, that should be able to have things that go a certain way. And that's all a delusion of our separateness. Everything's impacting everything else. We are in an ever-changing flow. Systems theory comes closest in our Western thinking of understanding that everything's in relationship. It's actually the relationships that are real rather than the isolated objects. And the relationships are constantly in flux. This delusion of thinking we're separate causes us to identify with that separateness. And when we identify with that separateness, with the I, me, and mine, then we're in the position that we have to defend, protect, enhance, fix, judge, this separate I. You can feel as we, you can feel this development as we, if we think that we're separate, then now there's some fixed thing to have a lot of orientation around. It's not so much that we come, become selfish, it's just we become full of self. And we orient there. And in this we suffer a lot because we're arguing with the truth of impermanence. We're arguing. When we try to protect this one self, when we try to make it up and you know, make it better and make it everything work for it and somehow have the idea that it shouldn't be impacted by other things or it should have control of itself, it should, it should just have it worked out then we suffer. You you may have noticed that. You probably have. We suffer. And so as we touch into the impermanence, we're letting go of this argument with the truth. Matthew Ricard says, we practice We practice because we understand that an incorrect perception of reality inevitably leads to suffering. So this perception, this misunderstanding causes us to suffer. And now we're back to Yatabuta 
if we could see things as they truly are, we have the potential to be free of suffering. As long as we're caught in this incorrect perception, we often get the feeling that like there's some mistake happening, that something should be different. We get caught up in our buts and our ifs and wanting the world to be different. And in some ways, this moving towards and accepting impermanence, this, um, I want to read you a poem that I feel like speaks to the possibility there. It's from Gregory Orr. If to say it once and once only, then still to say yes. And say it complete. Say it as if the word filled the whole moment with its absolute saying. Later for but. Later for if. Now, only the single syllable that is the beloved, that is the world. To say yes, yata buddha, to say yes. Or as in the classic phrase, the Buddha says, all things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away. To live in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. Hmm. We have the illusion that this hanging on to the solidity is going to make us safe. There is this, if I just know that you are you and I am I and this is going to stay here and this is going to stay, then I'm going to feel safe and I'm going to be okay. That's the illusion that we carry around with us. The problem is, it doesn't really work because it's not based in reality. Pretending that everything is going to stay the same, that the people you love are always going to be there, that the job that you want is about to arise and then you will have it permanently. that people all will behave always exactly the way you want. These would all make us feel really safe. And so we imagine that they're possible. But it's not. It's not possible. The world is unfolding constantly. The person, the people you knew at home when you left two days ago, They are not the same people anymore. They are two days different. (laughs) And you too are two days different. On the other side though, this impermanence this being in touch with what's real, if we stop resisting it and we go along for the ride, then we're in this place of wonder, of amazement. I mean, what's going to happen now? We have no idea. We think what we know what's going to happen for the rest of today and tomorrow. But as you sit there, you know, did you know what was going to happen today? I mean, when you look at it, really? Of course not. We don't know what's going to happen in the next sit. You don't know what I'm going to say in the next moment. Neither do I. <laughs> and there's a certain wonder in that. We're all in this co-creating this amazing world, and we're co-creating it with everything. 
Wow, how cool is that? And the fact that it is changing is also what makes our practice possible. If you were going to be the same person at the end of the week as you were at the start of the week, there wouldn't be much point in some of the moments that you've had that were not so pleasant. But because we change, it makes practice possible. It makes us, makes it so that we can, did I say that right? Because of impermanence and practice, we can actually affect change. So it's not without our participation that all this is happening, this impermanence. And as we see in moments clearly, as I'm sure you have, this changing nature of everything affecting everything else and constantly in a state of transition, which by the way, a little sidelight, I used to, at first when somebody put on their um, interview form, I'm in transition, my life's in transition, I would go, oh yeah, okay. And then after a while I went, wait, we're all in transition. It's like, of course you're in transition. Good observation. (laughs) So when we look outside and we look around, sometimes we can see this nature that everything is changing. And going into the natural world is a great way. You go out and you sort of have this little hit. Oh, this tree is is in growing and this one fell over and this one died. And we can see that it's all happening in a very impersonal way. And it's easier to see in the natural world than it is in ourselves. And so we can see how everything's affecting everything. We can see how the rain or lack of rain affects things. And after we get a sense of that, we can also start to include ourselves. And here at the retreat, you can start to feel the impact of all the things impacting you. The silence, not interacting with people, the food, the meditation. And it's all happening without you having to do something. to make each and every one of those things happen. There's certain places where you can make something happen. You had to show up for all those things to impact you. But it's not like we make everything happen. Does this make sense? Can you feel that? It's happening. And in some ways we participate, in some ways it just happens the changing phenomena all around us, inside us, in this impersonal flow. Notice the feelings, emotions, thoughts, sits you've had today. They've come and they've gone. Where are they? Seems like a really simple question. Well, they're gone. Yeah, but where did they go? How long were they here when they were here? That's almost longer than they were here, right? Each one. So what does this understanding do for us? How does this help us? It's a good question. 
The big thing that this does, this understanding, is it helps us release the grabbing hold of things as they go by. Both the pleasant and the unpleasant. You know, where was the good sit you had? Where, was the cha- where is the challenging sit? They're both equally gone. And that can be really helpful to remember. Right in the midst of it. This will be gone. And as we understand this more and more deeply, the temptation to try to grab a hold or resist something happening or not happening that is already here diminishes. Okay, so this is a challenging sit. This is a good sit. This food I like, this food I don't like. Whatever it may be, this weather, oh, this morning is great, this afternoon is hot. Whatever it is, it's happening and we can just see, yep, this is happening and it's going to change. It's gone. In fact, you might as well really, really appreciate whatever it is that's happening because it is going to be gone. And you don't know if and when it's ever going to happen again. William Blake has a great understanding of this. He said, He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. that wonder that I was talking about before. And as we practice with this, we can develop a sense of faith that what's unfolding is workable. And this is a very important thing we do in our practice, sitting here on the cushion. When you sit here on the cushion and you have a wonderful sit, that's very nice and I'm glad for you and it helps the body calm and it's a good thing. When you sit here on the cushion and you have a challenging sit, what's happening then when you sit with it and you sit through it is that your capacity and willingness to be with something difficult is expanding you're actually in potentially a greater growth spurt. If you can be what appears with what is challenging with a growing understanding that this is, this is okay, this is workable, in fact, this is kind of interesting, and it will pass, and I'll be okay. That's a really useful part of it. And I'll be okay. I can survive this. As that understanding deepens, as we go through that process again and again, hmm, it's this now. How can they have the fourth day in a row of oatmeal, which I don't like, and I'm going to be fine? It's not a problem. And the more we expand our capacity way past oatmeal into all the different aspects of our lives, then we can soften, we can surrender to life. We can be willing to go along with it. Now, I always have to be careful when I say this. That doesn't mean we become a bunch of doormats. It just means that we are willing to work and be present with what's actually here. That we're willing to be in the truth of the impermanent 
changing nature of things and with whatever is here. So we can become fully engaged without fixating. This is not a separating from the world. It's being in complete contact, rubbing up against. Sound familiar? Like our concentration practice. Rubbing up against it, being fully engaged without gripping. I'm describing the, uh, the first layer of equanimity. being fully willing to be with impermanence and understanding it more and more deeply creates the foundation for equanimity. And I want to emphasize that it doesn't mean we become separated. Just as I was saying, there's this great contact. Some of you may have heard, but it's just a beautiful example from Ajahn Chah about a cup that he had. How can you be so happy? This is somebody came to him and asked, how can you be so happy in a world of such impermanence where you cannot protect your loved ones from harm, illness, and death? The master held up a glass and said, someone gave me this glass, and I really like this glass. It holds my water admirably, and it glistens in the sunlight. One day the wind may blow it off the shelf or my elbow may mock it off the table. I know this glass is already broken, so I enjoy it incredibly. Really important. This glass is already broken, and so I enjoy it. Another way of talking about this inner weave of the impermanence and the suffering and this impersonal nature comes from Lewis Richmond. He says, when he's asked to describe the Buddha's teachings, he says, everything is connected, nothing lasts, and you are not alone. Because when we realize that we are all in this together, that we suffer together, that we are in this flow together, then we can feel we're not alone and this is also the place of arising of compassion. So this too comes from our understanding of impermanence. So I want to spend some time now saying some some more things about the practice. Practicing to see and to have insight and understanding around impermanence. So we've collected our mind. Well, we collect it again and again. So you may find, as we continue in the retreat, in order to see into impermanence, you may find again and again a certain amount of cultivating of concentration is always useful. And when you are doing the insight practice, when you're watching more changing objects, that too will cultivate concentration. So this collectedness of the mind in order to be in direct contact with what's here. So first we have to have the ability to see, to be undistracted in our attention. This is a poem from Mary Oliver called Breakage. I go down to the edge of the sea, how everything shines in the morning light. The cusp of the whelk, the broken cupboard of the clam, the opened blue mussels, moon snails pale pink and barnacle scarred. And nothing at all whole or shut, but tattered, split, dropped by the gulls onto the gray rocks and all the moisture gone. It's like a schoolhouse of little words. First you figure out what each one means by itself. The jingle, the periwinkle, the scallop full of moonlight. 
then you begin slowly to read the whole story. I read this because it's a little bit how our practice unfolds. We see, we come into contact again and again with different moments of our experience. The little things dropped along the shore. And then as we come into contact again and again, we start to see how they're woven together how they flow from one to another, how they're interconnected. How, though we just see one at a time, we discover it's not all by itself. So we can do this in many, many ways. And because we've been staying with the breath, I want us to take just a couple moments and invite you to pay very close attention to your breath. But different perhaps than what you've been doing, I want to invite you to watch how each moment of the breath is a little bit different. And you can add to the poignancy of this with your next breath by imagining that this is the first breath you've ever paid attention to. Your first breath. You've just been born. You feel how each moment of it, and then you can notice that each breath, if you pay attention, each breath is different than the one before it. When we look at sort of a general level, we think that each breath is the same. Well, maybe there's some variation one day to the next or one sit. But actually, each moment of the breath. And this is true of all the different experiences we have. You can pay attention to sound now for just a minute. And just for a moment, as you listen to my voice, instead of listening to the words of my, as I talk, pay more attention to the way that the sound keeps changing that what I say comes and goes very quickly. And there's different intonation, it arises, it passes. And when my voice stops, you can hear the birds. They come and they go. And this is true of each sense gate. The sensations in your body are constantly changing. And we can practice paying attention to this changing nature. And there's a couple specific ways that we can do this. We can watch the arising of everything new. And sometimes that's a little hard to catch. So it can be very helpful to watch everything on the other side, watching everything passing away. So just for a moment again, notice the sound of my voice and notice the tail end of each moment of sound. It's here and then it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. Again and again. 
other sounds gone. A sensation in your body may feel like it's there, but if you pay closer attention to it, you'll notice it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. It may arise again a little differently, slightly different, but it keeps going away. The duration may feel different to you, but the same process is happening. Obviously, you can watch this with thoughts, with emotions. Changes in your mind state, in the energy of your body. And as I describe this, I hope you have a little bit of a sense of the possible adventure in it. There's a mystery in an adventure. As we touch into this understanding that it's never the same. You are never the same. You are unique. One person arising at this place and time, never going to happen again. Your experience of this moment, right as I'm talking, is never going to happen again. In all of time and space. It's kind of remarkable. Unrepeatable. Ever. It's quite the mystery. This is what's possible when we come into contact with the truth, with yatabhuta, the truth of the way things are. Kala Rinpoche says, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. So I spoke about that illusion, that appearance of things, that idea that it's all solid and permanent and it's going to hold in place in some sort of safe and trustworthy way. We live in illusion in the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing, and being nothing, we are everything. That is all. To help you with that, when we see we are nothing, meaning when we see we are not separate, permanent, but part of this flow, when we see that we are not a thing separate, then we see that we're actually part of everything. That is all. It reminds me in the suttas again and again, this insight into impermanence is the cause, is, is a catastrophe condition that lets many, many people awaken. That is all we need. Complete non-resistance to the truth of how things are. Yata Buddha. I'm going to end with a poem. This is um, from Tijitsu. She was a nun, an abbess, uh, in a Zen, ma- Zen Buddhist nunnery in Japan. She saw the arising, arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this, arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go, and fell into the midst of everything. And I'll read it again. She saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. 
She saw that knowing this, a rose abided and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So let's sit together for a few minutes. The mind knows and sees things as they are, within and without, through and through, and thus is liberated. Thank you for your kind attention. May this be of support to your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.